0: Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I am joined by my colleagues,
1: Julia Georgia with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University, and
2: Dalibu Rohacz, also with AEI.
0: On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to the European peace that have emerged along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front. about why these issues matter to the United States. Our guest today, and probably our most frequent guest, even though he's been away for some time, AEI colleague Fred Kagan. And we'll be talking principally about the military balance uh, in Ukraine today. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us. Fred, as I said, it's been some time, but it's been kind of a, a slow period um, on the Eastern Front, and in particular in the Donbass. Both sides uh, have sort of reached a, a moment of pause. Uh, The Russians have sort of announced it, but also both sides uh, are now saying that they're about to renew offensives, whether, you know, the Russians are capable of doing it. In fact, whether the Ukrainians are capable of doing it and what they're capable of doing and where the action will take place is a little bit hard to foresee, but we're hoping that you can help us out. Uh, What have you seen over the last month and what is he coming down the pike?
3: So, first of all, thanks for having me back. Um, I enjoy uh, enjoy talking with you guys a lot uh, about this. I'm glad that you keep the attention on this, even when other people um, get a little distracted from we're,
0: it. We're having war fatigue, Fred. I'm, I'm, I'm fatigued. I need a little lie down. Well,
3: okay, okay. Um, I'm just okay. going to let that lie. Um, <laughs> so, the Russians entered a period of operational pause that lasted about a week uh, from... They, we assessed it, I think, on July 6th. They announced it on July 7th, and then it ended on, I think, again, we assessed it on July 15th, and they announced it on July 16th. Um, and that followed their uh, the Ukrainian withdrawal from the and the Russian capture of and the and the rest of Luhansk uh, Oblast. As is has been the case throughout this war, the Russians badly needed an operational pause to uh, recover from very bruising battles that they had waged to take Sivarodonetsk and the Sachansk. And they did not give themselves enough time, uh, which we had kind of expected because that's been their pattern. A week is not remotely enough time to recover from the disarray that they were in and the casualties that they had suffered. Um, but uh, Putin seems to be whipping them on. And so uh about a week after they'd announced the start of the pause they announced that it was over and shoigu has made uh, a somewhat unusually flamboyant set of uh visits with the various commanders of Russian groups of forces. Re-
0: Fred, remind our listeners who Shoigu is.
3: I'm sorry, uh, Russian defense minister, Sergei Shoigu has gone around and met with the commanders of the various Russian groups of forces, which parenthetically uh, has been a wonderful thing for us because we've been wondering who the heck some of these guys actually were. And then we turned out that there, there are guys who are uh, in charge of these things and announced, you know, attack in all directions. So uh, the last five days have ostensibly been the renewed Russian offensive. As you will uh, be able to read in the ISW update this evening, um, actually the rate of uh, ground offensive activity uh, over the last couple of days has not been different from what it was during the operational pause. So that is not a reflection of the Russians not trying. That is a reflection, I think, of the real limitations on Russian offensive combat power uh, and the fact that they just are not able to generate uh, more, you know, larger effect than this. Um, and the Ukrainians have not been pausing the East. The Ukrainians have been uh, digging in and preparing to defend and also, I think, preparing to conduct a fighting withdrawal or to continue the fighting withdrawal that they had started from uh Haven't had to yet. Uh, they They... I'm going to say they probably will. I suspect that the Russians will manage to grind their way to and then through Sivirsk, which is the town that they're currently focused on at some point in the coming weeks. But um, possibly not. But I suspect that they will and the Ukrainians will withdraw from it and then pull back to a line roughly along the E-40 highway that runs from Slavyansk uh through Bakhmut um and ultimately down to to Debaltseva for those of you who are familiar with that from the 2014 war, where we assess that it will stall. And we assess that it will not the Russians will not be able to take Slavyansk-Bakhmut, certainly not Kramatorsk, uh, and probably nothing more. probably they will not probably take any more significant terrain in uh Donbass during this offensive.
2: Can I um ask you before we sort of zoom in into these uh, sort of specific theaters in the donbas and beyond um i've one thing from from the isw newsletter yesterday actually two things so, so the first thing that struck me was was the report that a cat has been evacuated <laughs> by ukrainian troops from snake island and that the cat had survived the entirety of, okay. of the russian occupation so that's that's great news, um, but but the the, the report um, which has been also widely sort of re- reported as well of uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov uh, announcing quite explicitly that that the ambitions of the special military operation go beyond uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, uh, which uh, on the one hand is not really news because we sort of knew that you know, they wanted the whole thing. Uh, on the other hand, given everything that you just said and and the sort of static nature of the warfare over the past past months, uh, seems like an odd thing to announce if at the same time we suspect that Putin might be looking for some kind of off-ramp and ending the war on his own terms in the fall and trying to sort of impose some kind of settlement on Ukraine through which he would just keep the territorial gains that he has achieved. So, so why would the Russians be signaling to the world that they want to go beyond those two oblasts.
0: Well, if I could just add to that, too, because this, you know, there's sort of periodic moments of grandiosity, uh, you know, including Putin's Peter the Great speech, and so on and so forth. You, you, You almost have to ask, what is the purpose of making these You know, again, grandiose statements that, uh, you know, the only thing that I can think of is that it's just announcing that they're in this forever or for the long haul. But, you know, realizing any of these ambitions is not on the horizon that I can see.
3: Okay, well, so there's a lot to there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, um, I am not seeing any serious indication that Putin is looking for off ramps. I, I see continued in, indications that the West is looking for off-ramps and imagining, hallucinating, that, that Putin is also looking for off-ramps.
0: If we steer hard enough, we'll see more races. Right. So. If, yes. Yeah.
3: Right. I, I see every indication, on the contrary, that Putin is not interested in off-ramps, but is in fact doing his best to prepare Russia for a very long war, short of doing things that he... Things would actually put his regime in jeopardy, like you know, full-scale conscription and stuff. Um, but he's he is preparing for a long war, and I think it's important not to fall for various diplomatic and information you know mirages that may be presented to us. Not that there have been very many of those uh, that suggest that he's looking for off ramps. So that's the first thing. I don't see him looking for off ramps other than victory. Um, both of you are raising a very interesting point which i've reflected on as a military historian um, about the phenomenon of war aims expanding as capabilities to achieve them contract and when we've seen that before and we've seen it before in 1918 um and the uh the the guy essay and makers of modern strategy about the german uh the germans in the interwar period addresses this a uh, phenomenon concisely and very insightfully that the germans in 1918 reached the point where they had to demand more and more sacrifices from a population that was really not interested in making sacrifices anymore they did not want to or of course, didn't think they could use just use coercion and so they increased what they promised in return for the sacrifices even though they should have known that they were not going to be able to deliver on those promises. Now, they may not have known that. They might, in fact, have been divorced from reality. But it is a dynamic that I think we see playing out in Russia now. Putin is trying to get more Russians behind more sacrifices for this war. And it's been something that we've been monitoring very closely and have been reporting out on a lot has been the, the interaction uh, the, the, the commentary by Russian mill bloggers, by, by very ultra-nationalist, very patriotic, pro-war Russian mill bloggers who, after the river crossing debacle around um, uh turned against the conduct of the war and, be- and became very critical of it and have been creating a drumbeat of demand that Putin expand the war and expand the sacrifices that he demanded of the Russian people. And it has been interesting to watch the way the Kremlin has interacted with those folks. Uh, It hasn't shut them down. It's given various warning indications periodically of where it doesn't want them to go, and they don't always listen to that. But I think it's noteworthy that it hasn't shut them down because I think they speak for a constituency that Putin has to care about. And that constituency wants more and more. It wants more demands made of the Russian people, and it wants more promised return. So that dynamic I think is part of what is happening here. But very concretely, what Lavrov was talking about is incredibly old news because the areas that he named they already occupy. So basically what he's saying what he said was what we already know, which is the Russians have no intention of giving up the areas of Kherson and Zaporizhia and Kharkiv Oblasts that they currently occupy, which has been evident from all of the preparations they've been making to annex them. Uh, and Lavrov just, just said it out loud. I think that in addition, so if we think about this for a minute, when the, you know, the Russians do speak with an inside voice and an outside voice, and Lavrov is generally the outside voice. So when this conversation is going on inside Russia, I think that the, the dynamic is more along the, the German 1918 model. When Lavrov says it, I think it's an attempt to leverage something that the Russians are going to do anyway to try to persuade the West not to do things that the Russians don't want. Because what the context of the Lavrov statement was that Russia will have to look beyond this if the West continues to supply weapons. Now, the truth is that the Russians have already made it clear that they intend not only to keep all of this territory, but to take more, whether or not the West provides more weapons. And so this was just Lavrov Fundamentally, trying to use something to gain leverage and uh, which we shouldn't allow him to gain. Fred,
0: tell us who the Russian people are in this construct. I've been reading some things lately that when you know that there have been sort of uh, recruitment drives or whatever you want to call them underway in Russia, but it seems to have bypassed the core Russian population to a certain degree. So the sacrifice. You know, sort of in the ground view, is for other nationalities to die to the last man in order to achieve uh Russian ambitions while the uh, you know the the, the the hardcore of Russia remains uh going to cafes and nightclubs and things like that to exaggerate a little bit. But it does it does it does seem that this is you know, not an equally shared uh a proposed burden.
3: So we we've we've all been seeing indications of that for a long time. We've seen the prominence of the Chechens, you know, which has to do in part with you know the flamboyance of Ramazan Kadyrov and his you know thousand dollar boots. Um,
0: well, missing. he's
3: gone. But you know, and then we had the reports of you know they were going to go after Syrians and they were going to do this and that and the other thing. So it, this has been a a light motif all along. It came into sort of focus for us when we looked at the volunteer units. So all, so Rush, the Russian Federation is comprised of 85 what are called federal subjects, um, which is a combination of territorial districts of different sorts. And it appears that a directive was given for every federal subject to form at least one volunteer battalion. Now, it is a volunteer battalion. These are not. This is not conscription. These are volunteer battalions. And we think that they have been that there's going to be some cost sharing between the the federal subject budget and the federal budget. But what was noteworthy when we put out a little report on this uh, last week, I think it was lost all sense of time. I think it was last week. um, Is how many of those um, battalions are being formed in areas of that are minority enclaves? And this then made the the mill blogger circuit when one of the mill bloggers pointed out um, that there was now a second uh, little anti-war movement in a second minority enclave. We'd already known about the one in Buryatia, um, but apparently there is now also one in Tuva. Um, And that also caught our attention because when you really sort of look at the pattern and some of the reporting It it does look very much as if uh, one of the reasons Putin is reluctant to order full-scale conscription is because he does not want to have to conscript um, 18 to 21-year-olds from Moscow and Peter and uh, from the Russian heartland. And he would rather have tried to lure people from ethnic enclaves and poorer regions uh, away from the capitals to do the fighting. So... It's very possible that not only is there an ethnic sort of dimension to this, but that it's actually shaping Putin's decisions about uh, conscription and mobilization.
0: Well, the lure of a post-mortem Lada is hard to to resist.
1: Oh, yeah, that was terrible. And, And I think we've already seen this in the first few months of war, that this is Russia's war, but then the cannon fodder is usually not white Russians. It's the poorer ethnic regions and... And exactly what Fred was, was um, I think, telling us is going to continue to happen to make sure to enable the support. Um, I want to ask you, Fred, about looking into hmm, the near to midterm future about the force ratio. We sort of alluded to that at the beginning of this conversation and specifically two things. What the Ukrainians are really struggling with um, and is creating still in this kind of already Ukraine fatigue, is creating still a lot of news, is the missile terrorism. We saw it in the last few days in Odessa, in Vinitsa, in Kharkiv, and everywhere. So we were hoping or rooting for them to run out of stuff. um, but, But then the question that I have is... At this point, what do you assess? How long can this continue? Can they do this for months? Can they do this into years? Can it take m- more of um, um, of a dimension? Can it become even worse? Or do we expect periods in which they will pause with missile terrorism too? That's the one thing. And then the other thing is the artillery. Um we have talked with you the last few times when you were here about the force ratio that Zelensky and others have made very clear in their request towards um, the West for military support in that it's 1 to 7, 1 to 10, 1 to 15, up to 1 to 20 um, artillery pieces off Ukraine versus Russia, and then we had the NATO summit, in which um, the that package that was announced by Biden was to me the most important in terms of numbers. Um, I think we've seen what five or six hundred artillery um, pieces. Same with tanks. Um, now I'm guessing they're about to flow in the in the next few months. So the question. Would be in this crucial issue of artillery pieces um, and, and the force ratio that sort of seems to decide how the battle in the Donbas is going. Um, will this package in the next few weeks or months um, be able to kind of shift the balance um, in um, in the to the advantage of um, Ukraine? Are the Russians still able to? Throw out thousands of pieces um, every week. How does it look like?
3: So um, I'll start with the artillery, and then I'll, I'll work back to the missiles. Um, so you know, ratios are are funny things in war, um, and I don't think that it's likely that we're going to get to a world in which the Ukrainians can even out the ratio of artillery that they have, for Russian artillery. But we've given them something that they've figured out how to use that gives them an asymmetric response, which is the HIMARS, and Hmm. They are they are claiming that they are disrupting the Russian logistics and ability to supply. I have to tell you, objectively, I think we can see the evidence of that. Um,
0: Can't go to bed without seeing an ammo dump blow up every night on Twitter.
3: <laughs> that is right. Um, and so we're seeing all of the reports of the ammo dumps being hit. We're seeing various reports that the Ukrainian military intelligence is putting out about the Russian responses to that. But then we actually can confirm a little bit of this because um, the geospatial team at ISW headed by George Barros has been able to use the NASA um, you know, fire, fire, fire anomaly data uh, to show that you really can see that, the, that the, the number of artillery attacks that the Russians have been able to con- conduct is, has been lower. And that it it wasn't just about the operational pause; they really do seem to be struggling to maintain the same rate of fire. So, artillery tubes don't help you if you don't have ammunition for them. And if you think about it, you know the Ukrainian general staff, uh, I'm sorry, the Ukrainian military intelligence talked about some of the responses that the Russians have taken. So if you're likely to get big ammo dumps blown up, then you go to small ammo dumps. And if you're likely to have ammo dumps close to the front blown up, then you move further back. And these are all responses. Problem is, all of these responses have the effect of dramatically reducing the throughput of artillery shells. And considering that 155 or 152 millimeter shells are very heavy, the longer you have to truck them, the fewer you get forward. And the the more you have to move them from big depots to little depots. And I mean, it's just, it's not, it doesn't take much to disrupt the the kind of flows that they had been relying on for these vast barrages with artillery of that size. And I think we're seeing the effect of that. So that's been very important. And I think it's one of the things, um, almost certainly one of the things that has made it so the Russians have not been able to continue to resume an advance after they ended their operational pause this time, the way they had done, you know, been able to advance before. So that's the key thing on the artillery, on the artillery part. And now we're seeing, you know, the Ukrainians just took shots at the one of the at the, the key bridge across the Dnipro in Kherson um, oblast. You know, HIMARS is not the weapon of choice for taking down bridges. On the other hand, um, if you have at it long enough with precision weapons, you can, and there are other things you can do. That's a big deal. Yeah,
0: the, the Ukrainians were saying that it made the bridge unusable for yeah. heavy fighting. Vehicles. For heavy stuff, yeah. yeah.
3: yeah. I, and I don't know. I mean, if they keep shooting at it, I expect that they can. Um If they hit a Russian vehicle full of ammunition while crossing it, they probably can. I mean, there's there's a bunch of things that you that you can do there. But the fact that the Russians have to really worry about whether they're going to be able to use that bridge or not is potentially, you know, a big deal in itself.
0: And, and it, it makes the defense of the west side of uh, the river yeah. uh, a yeah. lot more dicey, you know, where yeah, Tessalon exactly. actually so, is. Yeah.
3: So, the, I, so the asymmetric response is this is what, you know, the U.S. chose to do um, instead of trying to give the Ukraine, you know, f- just throw thousands of artillery tubes at them, you know, we gave them, high, you know, high precision uh, weapons. And the Ukrainians have been using them to very good effect, and we're seeing that effect on the battlefield. Now, to the missile question, so the Ukrainian general staff reported today that the Russians have fired, have shot through 50 to 60 percent or something like that of their uh, pre-war stocks of precision munitions. We're seeing various indications that suggest to me that they are struggling to deal with a certain problem. But I'm going I'm to lay the problem out here briefly. Um, As I see it, if we just zoom back from all of this for a minute, the first problem is the Russians never achieved air superiority over Ukraine. And so they have not been able to or they have chosen not to try to use their ground attack aircraft to do ground attack aircraft things. And they've chosen not to try to use uh, longer range aircraft to do strikes on Ukrainian cities and stuff. And they've chosen instead to rely on long-range missiles. Well, long-range missiles in, you know, in countries like the U.S. and Russia are generally precision weapons because a long-range system that isn't a precision weapon and doesn't carry a huge nuclear warhead on it isn't very useful for anything. So once they decided to offset the lack of air superiority with missiles, they were kind of committed to using precision missiles for that purpose. Um, When you then look at the kind of targeting that they've been engaged in, it's devastating for Ukrainians who have to suffer these attacks. It's a very ineffective use of the system from a military perspective. You know, these these are systems that one could use to be going after command posts, that one could use to be going after really critical nodes in Ukrainian infrastructure and so forth. And I don't know whether the Russians have been trying to do that or not. I assume they have been. But they've ended up shooting a lot of them at apartment blocks and at warehouses. And now I'm going to say this out loud. They are firing S-300 missiles in a ground attack roll at fields full of grain. So, again, I, none of the none of, none of this detracts from the horror of this for the Ukrainians on the receiving end. And it, and it is a problem, uh, of course, for Ukrainians, and it will be a morale problem. And no, I don't think that it's going to be resolved anytime soon. Um, the only salve that I can offer is to say that this is an incredibly expensive way uh, to achieve the kinds of effects that the Russians are achieving with systems that they're, pro- they're going to have a very hard time replacing as long as Western sanctions on the components remain in place.
2: So I wonder if I could maybe press you on that a little bit and, and expand Julia's question when she's asking about how long does this go on, to expand that a little bit to, to the entire conflict uh, and, and bring it back to, you know, I, I mentioned this idea of an off-ramp. I mean, I didn't really mean that Putin was looking for a way out of the war altogether, but given that what they're doing is not working, uh, given that, uh, I mean, the, the the conflict has been fairly static, in, in, in recent recent weeks like you know like how long do they keep firing rockets at fields of wheat uh and at what point do they conclude that maybe it's better to just freeze it for the time being and you know resume fighting at at, 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 at some at yeah. some later stage after they have regrouped after they have you know bought equipment from china or or or, or whatever happens in the meantime. Uh, after you know some of the sanctions had been have been lifted, will have been lifted from 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 European countries and so on and so forth. Uh, do 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 you do you not expect to that de- for that to happen at all this fall, or or, or like what's what's your intuition about where this is headed?
3: I think we need to. I, th- I think we need to orient ourselves on a very unpleasant reality, which is that this war is no, this war which began in twenty fourteen and never stopped, is not going to end until Ukraine surrenders unconditionally to Russia or Putin leaves office and is replaced by someone who does not share his mania. As long as Putin is Tsar, Russia will not cease efforts, including forcible efforts, to conquer all of Ukraine. We really have to wrap our heads around that. And I do not see Ukraine surrendering. So that's that's the duration of the war. Now, the war has gone through, period. And we need to recognize this is the same war that started in 2014 and never stopped. Right? It used to be a sour joke. You know, what do you call it when the, when the tanks, aircraft, artillery tubes, you know, rocket systems and mortars of two countries shoot at each other? In Ukraine, we call it a ceasefire, right? That was true from 2015 until February of this year. There's not a world in which we could, in which Putin will allow this to get to anything better than that for a period of time while he rearms to launch a new invasion. But we also have to understand something that the Russians understand. The Russians know, and we see this reflected in the blogger discourse in particular, the Russians know that they have made a deadly enemy. They know that by conducting this invasion, they have created a degree of enmity in Ukraine that generations will not erase. Now, in truth, even a Ukraine under any circumstances poses no military threat to Russia and will not pose a military threat to Russia. But the illusion that there are friendly Ukrainians that the Russians can work with or any of that sort of stuff is, has been shattered, you know, was shattered first under the treads of Russian tanks and now under the in the shrapnel of Russian missiles hitting Ukrainian cities and killing Ukrainian civilians and burning Ukrainian wheat. That's over. The Russians know that. And so... Unless until and unless the Russians abandon the delusion that they are going to subjugate all of Ukraine, the war will continue or until Ukraine is given the capabilities that it requires to expel Russia from its territory and make it clear to the Russians that a renewed attempt to attack will meet with much more rapid defeat at much less cost to Ukraine. That's that those are the only conditions under which this war is going to end. I'm in favor of the latter. That's that's the one that I think we should be working on, but we mustn't delude ourselves that there's another end.
0: So, before we ask, the, you know, enough about them, what about us? Uh, you know, we're we're kind of looking at ourselves in the mirror and it's very difficult not to. Um, but uh, uh, before we leave the battlefield per se, can you give us your sense of how the um, counteroffensive in the south, uh, you know, I don't really even at this point have a sense of the scale that the Ukrainians are capable of of mounting, um, so on and so forth. But I'd be interested in your read on uh, what may happen over the next couple months in the Kherson counteroffensive.
3: I earnestly hope that it will begin soon and be decisive. And be, since we don't collect on blue and we don't make that kind of assessment, that's the sum total of what I am prepared okay. to say.
0: Okay, fair enough. Well, let me ask you about the Russian weakness. In front that, I, that I'm happy to talk about. Okay, well, so so the Russians know this is coming. Um, but, you know, they've, and it's close to, you know, they, they can resupply through Crimea, so I suppose, to a certain degree. But they've put... You know all their chips in the Donbass. So, what do you reckon? The, how durable the, the Russian defense can possibly be?
3: I think the Russian positions in Kherson and Zaporizhia are likely very fragile. Um, they're giving very, they're giving every indication that they're very fragile. Um, they are, you know, they, they've they've stripped it of forces. Um, they just conducted. You'll enjoy this, Giselle. The Russians uh, conducted today. Uh, an attack, a ground attack in Kherson, with a reinforced platoon. <laughs> so, the the ISW team and I hereby hereby coin the PTG, the Platoon Tactical Group, <laughs> okay. uh, to describe the offensive power the Russians are were able to bring to bear. Well,
0: <laughs> you know, I suppose you get down to the squad level or. or not. We could
3: have an You S- can have a, an STG, yes, indeed.
0: A sectional tactical.
3: <laughs> p- <laughs> so, they. I mean, they've. They've. I mean, we've had the reports of the T sixty two tanks going in there and being, you yeah, know, established. Like it would, it's like nineteen forty five in Berlin, right? It's taking the turrets off and putting them in, in revetments and in the. You know. right. So you know, th- th- there's nothing. There's nothing good there in terms of combat power uh, to hang on. Um, The Russians are reportedly building, you know, multiple defensive positions and and so on. I mean, again, (laughs) World War II, as Patton said, you know, fixed fortifications are a monument to man's stupidity. Defensive lines are only interesting if there's someone to defend them. And it's really not clear that the Russians uh, have such. Um, There's also a significant partisan movement and that the Russians are very uptight about. And we've seen multiple reports of the Russians building, you know, 360-degree defenses, you know, around Melitopol and elsewhere. That's not because they're afraid the Ukrainians are going to come from the ocean. That's because they're afraid of partisan attacks. And uh, there have been partisan attacks. So I think that the Russian positions are fragile in the South. I think that if the Ukrainians attack in force, the Russians high command is going to have to make some very quick decisions about whether they're going to stop whatever offensive they have going in Donbass and try to reinforce in the South or whether they're prepared to lose Kherson to the Dnipro and possibly beyond, um, depending on the scale of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. They, if the Ukrainians do this right, and the Russians are in the position that I think they're in the Russia, they won't actually have a choice. Because they won't, Russians won't actually be able to do anything fast enough to stop the Ukrainian counteroffensive if the Ukrainians have done it right. Um, but again, because we don't follow what the Ukrainians have or what they're doing, I don't know what the scale of it would be.
1: Nevertheless, I do want. Um, I do want to ask one last thing as we're looking to the next few weeks. Um, It's been more or less, given circumstances, as Giselle was saying earlier, a a quiet summer. And I want to insist a little bit on that package. Um, And I know you're looking at the other side, but I'm wondering the the NATO package that Biden um, has promised, we kind of know that the weapons must be flowing in. And we are focused now, as you're suggesting, on the southeast and the south. So and then Zelensky has been talking very mysteriously to lay people like me um, for a, a while now about the end of August as a tipping point. So, as we're about one month away, do you what do you expect to see? Can you describe whether the dynamic is going to change the force ratio, whether we're gonna see big banks, and whether it's all about that would be kind of the second part of the question geographically. So when the, uh, the end of August, if, if that means anything, um, what, what does it mean? And then geographically, if it's all about that land corridor um, that the Russians, we know, need um, to secure Crimea and supplies and all of that, and if that's going to be where the, um, where the big battle is going to take place in the weeks to come.
3: I mean, there are a number of factors that you can point to that are certainly relevant to the timing of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. One is that the Russians are now, you know, talking increasingly loudly and uh, we're we're talking about this and the Brits are talking about, you know, September referenda uh, to annex territory. It's highly desirable uh, for the Ukrainians to have counteroffensives underway uh, before those referenda uh, happen. So the Russians are not in an easy position to declare that that's all Russian territory and, and so on. I, I'm concerned about that, and we flagged it. We flagged some dangers that flow from that in one of our updates recently. But I don't. I also don't want to overstate that, because I want do. Let me state for the record: I do not think that Putin is going to engage in a nuclear war just because he's announced that he's annexed Kherson and the Ukrainians conduct a counteroffensive. I do think that he might threaten it. Um, so it would be desirable for the Ukrainians not to get themselves into that uh, position. I have no idea what the Ukrainian you know, force generation requirements are on their side to feel like they're ready for a counteroffensive. So I'm just going to put that to one side. It is also desirable from the Ukrainian perspective for the Russians to be decisively committed to the offensive operation they're engaged in in Donbass so that there's less chance that they'll be able to reinforce. I think they are. Now, largely, although we can't, you know, we're not necessarily seeing all of the Russian reserves and reinforcements. So I don't know. There might be something to wait for there. And then there's just the question of the Ukrainians are clearly undertaking a systematic campaign to achieve effects on the Russian systems, especially the Russian uh, sustainment systems in this region to facilitate the attack. And I have no idea what thresholds or indicators the Ukrainian general staff would be looking for to decide that the Russian goose was sufficiently cooked uh, along those lines that they were ready to go. But they certainly are going for something specific in terms of the kinds of preparations they're conducting. Um, So, you know, bring all of those things together and. That would point to a counteroffensive, you know, starting anytime from tomorrow, you know, through a month from now or so in principle.
0: Uh, I just as a situational wild ass guess kind of appraisal, you know, I would think that the effectiveness of the HIMARS and the MLRS, even in the small numbers that, that the Ukrainians have and they're supposed to be up to 20 or so fairly quickly. And... You know, it, it's kind of a cats and dogs mix of 155s, but that's getting to be pretty substantial. So, I, you know, it just sort of feels like the Ukrainians could get local fire superiority on this. Roughly, and, and it looks like they've. You know, it's really hard to just go from maps and stuff like that, but it looks like they have sort of some jumping-off points. Uh, to, yes, to...
3: We, they do have a bridgehead across the Inhulets River. Yeah. We, we're, we confirmed that today based on Russian attacks on positions okay. there.
0: Yeah, so, I, you know, I mean, I can believe, I mean, you know, what qualifies as a tipping point is in the eye of the beholder. But uh, as Fred said, the, the sort of uh, Russian obsession with the Donbass And I don't know whether that's cause or effect does give the Ukrainians an opportunity to to make get some serious gains um, in the South, you know, which would be just huge from a strategic and morale point of view. And and it would really defeat the, you know, sort of defeatist narrative that has never gone away um, in the United States and the West. And it would make it difficult for. The western europeans and indeed for us to totally bug out on the ukrainians um which is which is the sound of uh you know uh you know two cheers for for us but uh you know it may not be this sort of uh, overall tipping point that people may be expecting but i can see the ukrainians making a lot of progress by the time the weather turns
3: Listen, I mean, it's it's hard to tell because I think the the question is, if the Ukrainians start a big counteroffensive and they hit the crystal just right and it shatters, what is the effect of that across the theater on a Russian force that is already badly demoralized and really not excited about what it's doing? I, I, I don't know, but I throw that out there as a possible non-linearity in this.
0: Yeah. Look, and, and and the the Russians won't be able to hide a disaster in Kherson. You know, a lot of no. captives, and you know, no. at least, yeah. So, no, you know, I yeah, you're uh, you're shattering uh, <laughs> right from your lips to God's ears. No.
3: Yeah.
0: Fred, thank you so much. I mean we got to do this more frequently. Um, we can't always count on operational pauses to come around. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's convenient. And I'm, I thank the Kremlin for its uh, consideration in this regard. But uh, uh, the reason we have you on so frequently is a, your what your shows become some of the most highly rated ones on, on our little podcast. And so, um, so that's great, but it's a, it's a super Uh, discussion. And uh, so uh, thank you so much and bless you and your crew for the the work you do. I mean, I don't know if we had you on since uh, we saw President Zelensky uh, briefing Olaf Scholz and the others with his ISW uh, map of the day out. But uh, if you guys don't have that as a screensaver or on Yeah, we uh, enjoyed that picture quite a lot. Yeah, uh, well, you've you've earned it for sure. So, from me, Giselle Donnelly, and...
1: Yuria Zoja, and...
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Eastern Front. Our podcast is dedicated to the security challenges, and if we could just say, the war, that's arisen along the line from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website at AEI.org or at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please be in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod. That's one wonderful world. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thanks for listening and goodbye until next time.